just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail with the Opus 111 Group. We're here to talk with you as we do every Saturday at 9 Pacific about the markets, the economy, and giving you some insights that we hope will be able to provide you some good base to make some informed decisions about what you're doing with your money. Now, let's do our data dump, see where the markets closed yesterday. The Dow at 31,338. And by the way, the market did have a positive week. The S&P rose to 3899. NASDAQ higher at 11,635. Russell 2000, the best index of the day at 1768. Gold at 1739, silver at 1923 an ounce, U.S. crude at 104.79 a barrel, 10-year Treasury last bid at 3.08%, and soft white wheat quoted at 9.66 a bushel. Now we've got some um, important economic data coming next week. Uh, one thing is is that the uh, Consumer Price Index report measuring inflation at our level will be out on Wednesday. And then Friday, we get retail sales and industrial production. So um, that will be giving us some indication as to uh, just which way things are trending. We'll be talking about inflation and the economy and recession, bear market, those kinds of things during today's broadcast. So hopefully we'll give you some insights there as well. Now, far be it for me to talk badly about the people in Olympia, but... According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the BEA, the state of Washington's economy shrank twice as fast in the first quarter of this year as did the, as the national average. Uh, the, the economy shrunk 3.3%, national average down 1.6%. Uh, Idaho was down just 1.1%, and Oregon uh, down only 0.7%. So given this, how we're all operating in the same environment, you got to figure there's something um, else that causes those unpositive results. And you know how people talk about the price of gas, right? Well, you know, if you had the unfortunate, uh, uh, I don't know what, but situation of having to live in California, Southern California, Morrow County, it's over $7 a barrel, excuse me, a gallon. Um, that's kind of pricey. Uh, but, here, you know, here, just for fun, here's, here's a comparison. Starbucks, if you go to Starbucks and order a gallon of coffee, $64. And if you want a gallon of drinking water, you know, the kind you get in the bottles, that's $10. So it's all relative, isn't it? We just, uh, those gas prices are in your face and they become more noticeable that way. Now, this past week, the euro, the currency for the European Union, slid to a 20-year low against the dollar. And, you know, the economy in Europe is not looking too good uh, with their natural gas issues and all kinds of stuff. They are just totally confused. And the U.S. dollar usually does well as investors look for a safe haven for their money. And right now, the dollar is at a 20-year high. And that's another factor that's been keeping the uh, commodity prices and oil uh, kind of under control. 
it certainly had an effect on the yellow brick uh, on gold. Gold has lost more than $90 an ounce in the last two weeks. Silver has lost $2 an ounce. Um, and again, it's due to uh, a strong dollar and rising interest rates, which kind of are, how would I say, interrelated. And this recent weakness in gold is being interpreted as the gold market uh, finally anticipating lower inflation in the years to come. And gold has been slow to respond to expectations for higher real interest rates. That means the Fed tightening and uh, raising rates. But there's also a reason to think that it's begun, that gold's finally begun to catch on. There, the Fed today is uh, actually, their tightening will result in lower inflation tomorrow. Well, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. Now, the second quarter earnings season uh, is hard upon us. Starting next week, we'll be getting the reports from hundreds of major stocks. Not all next week, but the big banks will start first. And this is where we typically find out which stocks have done well and which have, shall we say, lagged. And as always, it's an expectations game. That means, you know, the way the traders work is that you can be going out of business, you know, so to speak, uh, completely imploding as long as that's what they expected. Then they'll say, oh, that was in line with expectations and your stock price doesn't get hurt too badly. But whatever you do, don't surprise them. It's okay to surprise occasionally the upside, but if you go to the downside, the effect is, uh, how might I say, magnified. For the second quarter, uh, the street is expecting the S&P to report earnings of around $55 a share. Uh, That's index adjusted. And if the street is right, well, that would be an increase of just about 6% over last year's quarter, too. So that's not a huge rate of growth, but it's not chopped liver either. That represents a small increase over the first quarter. So not only are profits growing, they're actually picking up a bit. Now, you know, there's all this talk about bear markets and what does it all mean and stuff. I want to help quantify some of the, um, well, criteria for that. And, and, and here's some stats just for reference. Stocks, on average, lose about 36% during a bear market. On the other hand, when they recover, they gain 114% during a bull market. So it's like three times whatever the losses are. And that's just on average. And there's been 26 bear markets in the S&P since 1928. That's when they have reasonably good data since then. And 27 bull markets in the same period. And the growth of the bull markets is way ahead of whatever the bears uh, put up. Even though the the, uh, bear market seems a lot more onerous when it's going on because it's, what's a good word, unpleasant. You know, the average length of a bear market, 9.6 months. Average length of a bull market, 2.7 years. So, and that's and that's from Hartford Funds, all that data. I didn't make it all up. So this is, a, you know, a good scoop. Keep it in perspective. That's what you have to do when things are not going as you would like. Yeah, and I'd say that's a fair assessment for what the markets are right now. See, because bear markets tend to reveal who's been kind of playing it by ear and who has an actual strategy. If you have a strategy, well, you're definitely not happy your portfolios are down, that's for sure. But I think you can be very confident that you and your portfolios will persevere. And the bear markets help prove that within the discipline of investing, your temperament and attitude 
is way more important than intellect and process in any short-term outcome. So it's all about your attitude. How do you approach this? If you think the world is ending, well, I feel sorry for you, but it's not. And so don't make any bad assessments based on, <clears throat> excuse me, emotional responses. You know, uh, the bumps of volatility, which somehow has turned into a bad word in uh, the current uh, media environment, but the, they're inescapable. I mean, it, it's, it just comes with the deal. You, you can't get away with it. But volatility, you know, it, they volatile up and down. But let, think of it this way. Put them in perspective. When you're looking at the TV stations, especially uh, the financial media stations, uh, you know, you see the big banners about, oh, the Dow is dropping, uh, the S&P, new low, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, it, it, it creates fear and uncertainty, right? But it's all relative. If we have a 1% move in t at today's level, that's about 310 points. Back when the Dow was at 10,000, 1% was only 100 points. So this volatility is a matter of perspective. That's why when I'm doing the radio reports with Dave in the morning, uh, I try to use percentages for movements as opposed to points because it gives you a much better feel for what's actually happening than what the points might indicate in today's market. Now, the CBOE has, the Chicago Board Option Exchange, has what's called a VIX index, V-I-X. It's been uh, called the fear index uh, as a gauge of investor sentiment. What it is, it's got an inverse correlation to the S&P, meaning that when the stock market's down, fear is up and vice versa. Generally, a VIX of 20 indicates investor contentment. 30 or more, well, that's anxiety. Right now, we're about 25. So I think given the way the market's going, that's pretty safe assessment. We're speaking now about the VIX, the uh, volatility index. Uh, and it is, it? you can uh, just type it in and you'll see there's a value. VIX is the symbol, just like it sounds. And it's a way to, you know, just track this. And it's not infallible, oh, by the way, but it does give you some indication. You know, uh, As I was saying, uh, uh, a score of around 25 where it is now is kind of in between the... Uh, contentment and the anxiety levels. If it goes to 40 or higher, well, Katie bar the door because that's kind of extreme fear. Well, since 2010, it's only been that high in 15 trading days. So that's not any meaningful figure. And if you go back to when the VIX was invented back in 1990, 74% uh, of the time, uh, the days of extreme fear happened in 08 and 09. Okay, that kind of made sense. Most years, in 21 since 1990, most full years, didn't say one day when the VIX hit 40. So high fear days and years have been the exception, not the rule. So once again, perceptions are likely skewed in that regard. So, you know, like I like to say, the John Candy School of Economics, just the facts, Jack. Try not to let the uh, hype of the financial media confuse you. So, you know, so should you embrace volatility? Well, I think if you're able to put aside day-to-day's discomfort of market volatility, and I think you should, it could provide you the opportunity for higher returns because while trying to time the market is a very bad idea, 
Investing during down markets is exactly in line with what we like to call buy low, sell high. Doesn't say you have to put all your money in, but it doesn't hurt to maybe look at some of these things that have been beaten up badly and start uh, maybe taking some positions. And you know, the glass, as far as this markets are concerned, have been more than half full historically. If you're all caught up in this volatility stuff, remember markets have been positive more often than not. But stocks have turned in a positive return annually, 70 of the past 90 years, which means they've been up 78% of the time. So you got to bet with the house on this one. Now, it, it, when do we get a recovery from a bear market? Well, you know, there's always, well, if you watch the financial media, this is the kind of answers you get. You say, well, they won't end until the individual investors throw in the towel or whatever other laundry you might have. Uh, fear hits new heights or stocks finally get cheap again. Yeah, okay. Well, taking them one at a time, here's why they're not exactly accurate. Who says you have to capitulate? Throw in the towel. You know, they, a, a lot of the um, pundits like to argue that the bear markets hit bottom when they give up on stocks in a, like a crescendo. You know, just a big selling panic. Well... That isn't what happened in 32, 74, 82, or 02, among others. Bear markets sometimes end in a frenzy. More often than not, they just kind of fade away. Sometimes bear markets end around the time the VIX uh, has peaked, but not always. Now, the next one is fear has to spike. Uh, okay. Many professionals contend that the VIX is too low right now. That's according to Nick Colas of Data Tech Research. Uh, in October eight, 2008, uh, the VIX hit its record high, but stocks fell more than 19% before the bear market finally ended in March of 2009. Now, stocks have to get a lot cheaper. Many investors believe that the bear markets end only after formerly overvalued stocks have become bargains again. Well, that's not true either. In March of 2009, at the bottom of the financial crisis, stocks traded at more than 13 times their long-term ratings, which adjusted for inflation. And that's according to uh, Professor Schiller. It was only about, it's only about 20% cheaper than the average all the way back to 1881. So, come on. Uh, let's keep things realistic, shall we? Uh, the Fed, the Fed had we released, we didn't, but the Fed released their minutes from uh, their June meeting, and um, it showed that they're emphasizing the need to fight inflation, even if it means slowing the economy, which already appears to be fading toward a recession. That's according to the minutes uh, released on Wednesday. They said the July meeting, well, that will be in another couple of weeks, I guess. Uh, uh, we'll also see another 50 or 75 basis point move on top of the 75 basis point increase approved this last month. And a basis point, by the way, is one one hundredth of one percent. So you're talking about one half or three quarters of one percent increase. Not huge, but it's, you know, fine tuning like tepid. Stepping on the brakes just a little bit to help slow you down, not slamming them on. The Fed minutes uh, said, and I'm quoting in particular, uh, 
the uh, committee participants judged that an increase of 50 or 75 points would be appropriate at the next meeting. And they said that after a series of rate hikes, the Fed would be well well positioned to evaluate the success of the moves before deciding to keep raising. They said more restrictive policy could be implemented if inflation fails to come down. They are bound and determined to kill inflation because inflation is a whole lot worse than recessions. So... Anyhow, they're actively working on it. I guess you could be uh, happy in that regard. Now, what about the economy? You know, in the last 18 months, now this is, I I know most people aren't going to believe this, but we've had the fastest global growth in 50 years, five zero years, followed by the most rapid slowdown, which is, uh, creates a, 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 situation that's unprecedented. You know, why is it slowed down so much? A lot of it, again, going back to attitude and perceptions uh, more so than facts. But each of the uh, 12 U.S. recessions since World War II had shrinking output and rising unemployment. Uh, This year, economic output fell in the first quarter, but it doesn't, well, it's probably going to be maybe flat in the second quarter, but the job market certainly hasn't slowed down. At the end of June, we had 1.3 million folks collecting Fed unemployment. That was 1.7 million in the three years before the pandemic, when it was, the economy that is, was considered pretty strong. And that number went all the way up to 6.5 million during 07 and 09. And uh, so it's been a lot higher. And this level of job openings that was released on, I guess, Wednesday was better than the 11 million estimate from FactSet. There are 5.9 million people counted as unemployed last month, meaning that there is 1.9 openings for every available opening, every available worker. That's still along historic highs. Now, service sector continued to expand in June. You don't see this in a recessionary environment, all right? All 18 industries reporting growth. The headline index came in a little lower than last month, but it still beat the consensus expectation for the first time this year. Once again, better than expected is always a good thing. The non-farm payrolls, which came out Thursday, rose 372,000 folks, adding far more than, excuse me, came out yesterday, came out uh much more than the 265 anticipated. You know, the service sector continued to lead the way. However, manufacturing payrolls also were up 29,000 folks for the 14th consecutive monthly gain. The hiring in June was near monthly highs. Uh, gained earlier in the year. Uh, companies added an average of nearly 400,000 folks over the previous three months, keeping the job market on strong footing. And as I think I mentioned at the top, the unemployment rate at 3.6%, near a half-century low, uh, which was hit uh, before the pandemic hit. And employers have hired across industries, not with government. I don't know this is bad. The only major category to shed jobs. So... (laughs) The, the, the economy, you've got to understand, the economy, the basic economy is strong. It is doing fine. It's just that all this other news and headlines and innuendo and suggestion is leading people, in my opinion, 
to perhaps make conclusions that aren't necessarily accurate. Now, that doesn't change the price per share on things, he hastened to add. But um, again, don't take the headlines just as fact. Do a little homework. Read, read between the lines, if you will. Now, one bit of, I don't know, interesting information I found uh, related to jobs is, uh, and this was in the Wall Street Journal, since February of 2020, and that was the month before the bug showed up, the share of all U.S. jobs located in what are considered red states has grown by more than half a percentage point, this according to the Labor Department data. They've added, red states have added 341,000 jobs, while the so-called blue states are down 1.3 million jobs uh, in the same period. Further, 46 million people moved to a different zip code in the year through February 2022. That's the most in any 12-month period going back to 2010, and that's according to Moody's. The states that gained the most, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, red states, as uh, according to the Cook Political Report, uh, and that's based on presidential elections. The states that lost the most residents, blue, led by California, New York, and Illinois. You can draw your own conclusions, I guess. So, inflation. Now, here's where we're also getting a little bit of, uh, shall we say, mixed messages. Oil, wheat, natural gas, lumber, corn, and other raw materials ended the last quarter near to or lower than March prices. And those price drops have started to raise hopes that inflation has, in fact, peaked. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm reading ahead. Citigroup said that oil could fall as low as $65 a barrel this year. On the other hand... J.P. Morgan said it could go up to $380 a barrel. Well, there's a lot of difference between the two, isn't there? I think that's also a a good comment and market forecasting in any case. The bond market now expects the uh, inflation rate to average 2.5% a year over the next five years. That's down sharply from the all-time high of 3.6, which was in mid-June. Pretty significant difference. Now, consistent with the improvement in the outlook for inflation, the bond market has moved lower, dropping up by 1%. And in, please understand that in bond market terminology, that's huge. I mean, again, one basis point is uh, one one-hundredth of a percent. And so when bonds typically trade in three and five and seven-tenths, seven basis points, a hundred is a big move. And they're expecting that the Fed's target at the end of next year, uh, which was 4%, is now 3%. So that's all good news, especially since it means that the risk of recession, which is brought on by a tight Fed, is likely lower than the broader market thinks. And it's a clear message, in my opinion, to the Fed that they needn't and probably definitely shouldn't panic and raise rates either too much or too quickly. Although where the economy has improved dramatically from the complete lockdown in April 2020, it's still feeling lingering pain from the policy mistakes that were made to address the bug. First, the good news. Unemployment 
As reported yesterday, down 3.6%, very close to where it was before the bug even showed up. Manufacturing production above 3.8% where it was before the bug. However, we're still suffering from policy mistakes. Running an overly loose monetary policy, handing out too many government checks, which allowed American consumers to borrow from future production and spend more in the past two years than they would have if no pandemic had occurred. And finally, locking down many parts of the economy through government overreach and mandates at multiple levels. The current state of inflation expectations over the next five years, which have fallen from a recent high of 3.7, are now again 2.6%. That's pretty amazing. Because you combine that with a pretty dramatic plunge in commodity prices that we talked about a little while ago, this is the market's way of saying the Fed shouldn't get overly aggressive. In fact, in recent weeks, the bond market has actually reduced by three-quarters of a percent, its expectations of what the Fed funds rate would be at the end of next year. Three percent is now expected to be the high in the coming cycle versus 3.75 percent just two weeks ago. Again, these are, uh, on the bond market context, huge differences. If the bond market and commodity markets are right, then the stock market is all almost certainly over-concerned with the potential risk of Fed tightening. And even though reported inflation is likely to remain uncomfortably high through at least the end of the year, it's becoming clear at the edges anyway that inflation, are, the dynamics are improving for the better. And it's pretty clear that the surge in M2, that M2 is the money supply, it's basically every kind of cash that's out there, money market, savings accounts, CDs, all that kind of stuff, everything that's almost is considered cash. And it continued through the third quarter last year. Now, since then, the deficit has plunged and M2 growth has gone flat because they've quit printing money, shall we say. And so that's all ground to a halt. So we don't have that wind or fire behind us, depending upon your point of view. There's still a lot of inflation in the pipeline, which is continuing to show up and will continue to show up in the coming months and quarters, even though that source has all been cut off. Soaring housing prices are now boosting rents. There's always a lag effect in that regard. Um, Again, as housing prices go, so too do rents, but again, on a lagging basis. Uh, It looks as if uh, that will continue for the rest of the year, that is to say rents rising, and rents are about 30% of the consumer price index. Wages and salaries are rising. They're likely to keep going up until the economy adjusts to a new lower inflation equilibrium, and wages, again, invariably lag rising prices. Energy prices have turned down in the past month, but lots of other prices are still moving up to offset increased energy costs that were created months ago. It takes a while for these pigs to work their way through the pipeline. You know, commodity prices are dropping of late as we talked, but it's going to take months before the commodity-derived products begin to actually show the lower costs of input. For instance, global food prices, uh, this according to a UN index of world food costs, the global food prices dropped from near record amid prospects for fresh supplies and fears about a recession offering some respite to strained households. 
that UN index uh, cost slipped 2.3% last month. That's the third decline in a year, excuse me, in a row. However, the bad news, uh, the index is still up 15% for the year. But if it's trending lower, I'll take that. Now, this recession, we talked about this last week, and I'm not going to beat it up, but the U.S. is clearly not in a recession yet. And it, it, from some of these economic reports, I hope you've been able to gather that. But in the first five months of the year, manufacturing production is up at 6.6%. Non-farm payroll is up at about 480,000 folks. And again, the unemployment rate at 3.6, down from 39 in April, consumer spending and real personal income were at record highs. If this is a recession, I'll take two, right? I mean, but again, the media is not exactly reinforcing these data. Many analysts are now saying the recession could be mild. Tuesday, Credit Suisse said it sees the U.S. dodging a recession, it, even though it lowered its S&P target for the year end to to reflect uh, the higher cost of capital, meaning higher interest rates. Dr. Ed Yardini of Yardini Research had this to offer. He said, the market's been bracing for a recession, and now it may actually be embracing it. The idea being, let's just get it over with. If you're going to have a recession, let's do it. Let's clean out the excesses and start all over again. The market is starting, look, and this is him still, the market starting to look ahead into next year, and that could very well be a recovery year from which, excuse me, from whatever this recessionary environment turns out to be, unquote. The Credit Suisse strategist, his name's Jonathan Golub, in a note to his clients, said he expects the U.S. to avoid recession. Recessions are most accurately characterized by a meltdown in employment by also with the inability of consumers and businesses to meet their financial obligations. That's not happening now, folks. Um, Morningstar, uh, which is an independent research company, uh, they say, uh, according to, to their, according to valuations, stocks appear pretty reasonably priced, is what their analysts are saying with the companies in their global coverage universe trading at about a 17% discount to fair value. That's pretty good. I mean, well, good in the sense of if you're a buyer. At year-end uh, last year, stocks looked slightly overvalued. But, of course, no guarantee they won't fall further. But Morningstar's chief market strategist, a gentleman named Dave Sakara, um, said that Judiciously adding to stocks makes more sense now than it to reduce them in today's market, unquote. Bruce Kassman, chief economist at J.P. Morgan, he says, he's well, he's predicting a bend but don't break uh, scenario for the economy, a sharp slowdown in activity that does not crack the job market. He adds that corporate profit margins, while slowing somewhat, remain exceptionally high historically. At around 18% of sales over the last year, after-tax profits have rarely been higher since World War II. Now, how can that be recessionary? I'm sorry. But heading into recessions in 91 and 01, firm profit margins fell to single-digit levels. And firms cut back on spending to, then to build up profits and, in the process, drag down the economy. Mr. Kassman, again from J.P. Morgan, said that 
firms now have a very large cushion uh, to the growing profit slowdown. Businesses are also, <laughs> to use this term, swimming in nearly $4 trillion of cash. That's a fun pool to swim in, which is a record and another cushion. And as we talked last week, as you may recall, households are flush with cash, too. At the end of the first quarter, uh, investors had $18.5 trillion in checking accounts, saving accounts, and money market mutual funds, earning nada. But that was up from $13.3 trillion before the bug, uh, again, helped by the relief checks uh, over the last couple of years. <clears throat> and finally, these words from LPO Financial, very succinct. We think if the lows aren't in, they're close, unquote. I like the way those guys talk. Okay, so Peter Lynch, the world's best, well, he isn't still doing it, but uh, mutual fund manager. He used to run Fidelity Magellan Fund. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just because you buy a stock and it goes up doesn't mean you're right. Just because you buy a stock and it goes down doesn't mean you're wrong. Amen, Peter. So keep that in mind when you're making your investments. Now, 90 years ago yesterday, just for perspective, the Dow fell to its lowest level uh, during the Great Depression. It hit, uh, it was in July of 1932. <clears throat> the Dow finished the day at 41. 41, yeah, no other numbers. That's a drop of 89% from the all-time high it had hit previously in 1929. It's safe to say that the world was a mess. Things were getting worse. We got nothing compared to what was going on then. I mean, sure, it's confusing, but it was nothing like what those people had to deal with. I bring this up simply as an investing lesson. For those folks who kept their nerves and their optimism, remember, attitude, it was a great time to invest because by March of 37, which was uh, five, four and a half years after the low, the Dow had risen 371%, which is pretty good. Now, we saw a similar thing a couple of years ago in the 2020 panic. You know, when folks get scared, it's time to buy. You know, that's just logic. With investing, remember this, time is always on the side of the optimist. You know, and, and this is one of the things that kind of really bothers me. Um, I know, seek help, Mike. Okay, but in the Wall Street Journal, there was this, this uh, note. It said, one of the biggest threats to market fails is a basic sanity check. The threat is that households are the most depressed they've been since the University of Michigan began its Consumer Sentiment Index in the 1950s. When consumers are worried about their finances and the economy, the danger is self-fulfilling cut in spending that brings on a recession. The sanity check. Really? I mean, really? Worse than when lines of cars waited for hours in, a, in 1974 or 1973, even if there was any. Worse than when unemployment was almost double where it is now and inflation uh, was in the double digits in 1980. Interest rates at 14.5%, top tax rate at 
Worse than after 9-11 or when the global banking system was on the brink of failure in 08? Come on. I mean, I get it. It's emotional and you feel it. But folks, this, I think this is too much looking over shoulders at 2008 and imagining that the world is coming to an end again. No. But if the behavior continues... It could be self-fulfilling, and that's what I'm trying to help dissuade, I guess, with these little rants. You know, Barron's, Barron's Magazine, uh, their latest guide to income investing, uh, they're, <laughs> excuse me, suggesting opportunities, <clears throat> excuse me, in things like stocks, junk bonds, um uh, Muni bonds, pipeline companies, a.k.a. master limited partnerships, uh, high yield bonds, converts, convertible securities, real estate investment trusts, telecoms, preferred stock, electric utilities, treasuries, and tips. That's a bunch. Now, if you're a long-term investor, how much more do you think we're going to fall? You know, is it enough to make up for the tax hit you'd likely take as a seller here after the huge run-up of 21 and 28% we've seen over the last couple of years? Now, if you're doing it in a, in a in a retirement account, it's not a thing. But uh, you have to consider that the effect of it when you're doing it in a taxable account, and see if perhaps you can uh, do some tax loss selling to have offset some of that. But I believe that to be a seller now, you have to have believe three things. One, the S and P is going to drop at least twenty five or thirty percent from here, and that's on top of what it's down what maybe nineteen percent as of today. Your capital gains taxes would be less than the rest of the drop, and you'd be able to get back in at or near the lows. Tee-hee-hee. I'm sorry, but I have to be a skeptical guy that most uh, investors, uh, and I use that term advisedly, has even considered any of these and could execute them all with no problem. As to bonds, the tips, the treasury-insured uh, securities and munis, they've been doing much better than corporate bonds and long treasuries, long meaning out beyond 10 years. But with bonds having been down double digits along with stocks for the first time since 1981, there's been very few places to hide out. Now, what I'm confident in is that investors with a proper strategy should not be concerned with participating in the next 10 to even 50% decline. Instead, what they should be concerned with is making sure they participate in the next 100 to 200% advance whenever that may take place. Now, some closing words from the eminent Professor Hendrik Bessembinder. And that's a legit guy. He's a professor at Arizona State University. He performed a study on every stock on the New York Exchange and the NASDAQ going back to 1926. Now, I think this is very interesting. He found that of all those stocks, and you got to there's 1,500 plus on the New York and Jeepers. I don't know how many on the NASDAQ anymore, <clears throat> but multiple thousands. He found that just 86 stocks accounted for $16 trillion in wealth creation. That was half the market's total return over the past 90 years. And all of the wealth creation in the stock market can be attributed to the top 4% of winners in the stock market, while the remaining 90%, excuse me, 96% of stocks 
matched one-month T-bills are cash. You're never going to hit the cover off the ball with diversified strategy, but you always end up on the winning team. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this helpful. We'll be back next Saturday with more market news. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Opus 111 Group. Thank you very much for listening. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Money, money, money.